Welcome to episode 5 of the Lives of the Saints first series, the 1928 BCP Saints. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church. In, the episode, in this episode, I pay tribute to St. Paul, whose feast day or holy day, technically titled The Conversion of St. Paul, is January 25th. There is no mention of Paul in the Gospels. He appears for the first time as the young man who held the perpetrator's coats during the stoning of St. Stephen in Acts 7, verse 58. This young man named Saul was Saul of Tarsus, a city in Southeast Asia Minor at the south end of the mountainous region of Cappadocia and east of Cilicia. We know that he was a Roman citizen, but Scripture does not tell us what his name was in Latin. Saul is his Hebrew name. According to early Christian tradition, he studied under the most illustrious rabbi of the day, Gamaliel, who is the same person who rescued the remains of St. Stephen and allowed a proper burial on his land, which was disgusting during the episode on St. Stephen. We know nothing of St. Paul except from what he tells us or what St. Luke wrote about him in Acts of the Apostles. He later labeled himself the Hebrew of the Hebrews in his epistle to the Philippians in Philippians 3.5. There is no mention of him in any of the Roman or Jewish histories of the first century including the famous Jewish historian Josephus. Curiously, given his relationship with Roman authorities and the long-running legal battle with them, none of the Roman histories of the day make mention of him. We know nothing certain also of his appearance. All such references are entirely based upon the apocryphal the Acts of Paul, which was rejected as false by the early church. The illustration is an unfinished Russian Orthodox icon of him, painted in the 14th century by the most famous of all Russian icon painters, Andrei Rublyov. How he became the most famous advocate of Christianity is told in the epistle reading for the conversion of St. Paul, which is Acts 9, verses 1 to 22, and in later chapters of the book of Acts. In modern times, we know what the word conversion means, but it should be noted that the word first appeared in the Western world in the 14th century to describe a change of religious affiliation. In the Greek New Testament, the root words are epistrophe or epistrophe, both derived from the same root as revolution, all interpretations implying some form of dramatic change or reversal. Neither St. Paul himself in his several epistles nor St. Luke in Acts of the Apostles ever uses conversion to describe his experience on the road to Damascus. 
Saul set out on the road to Damascus, quote, still breathing threats and murder from Acts 9, verse 1. Having received the permission he had sought from the high priest at Jerusalem to arrest, to find arrest and return to Jerusalem for prosecution, the followers of Jesus. The New King James Version, which I have used as the reading text, refers to these followers as the way, from the Greek hados, meaning road or path. The King James Version, used in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, does not recognize way as a noun, but simply says, quote, any of this way in Acts 9-2. According to the tradition of the Eastern Church, based upon John 14, verse 6, I am the way. At the time of St. Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, the followers of Jesus referred to their beliefs as the way and themselves as followers of the way. They did not call themselves Christians, meaning followers of the Christ, which is Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, until later at Antioch. Ironically, after St. Paul became a Christian and helped establish the churches that would become the See of Antioch. St. Paul's experience on the road to Damascus is unique in Scripture. A light from heaven suddenly surrounded him, and blinded by the light, he fell to the ground. Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Paul asked who it was, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The Orthodox Study Bible New Testament and Psalms explains that goads are spikes and that the term implies, quote, the futility of action against an invincible force. There is no evidence that Saul of Tarsus ever met Jesus during Jesus' life on earth, so the persecution mentioned by Jesus was not of Jesus himself, but of the followers of Jesus, or as we would call it, the church as a body. Saul was directed to go to Damascus where he would receive further instruction. He was led away to Damascus to a house on the street called Straight where he dwelled blind for three days under the protection of the disciple Ananias. Jesus referred to Saul in conversation with a skeptical Ananias as, quote, a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings and the children of Israel, from Acts 9, verse 15. Ananias, as instructed, laid hands on Saul, and his sight was restored by the presence in Saul of the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, Saul of Tarsus was baptized and became the apostle to the Gentiles. Several, among several other names or descriptions which St. Paul referred to himself in his epistles are bondservant of Jesus Christ from Romans 1.1, 1, 1, 
apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God from 1st and 2nd Corinthians 1.1, the least of the apostles in 1st Corinthians 15.9, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father in Galatians 1.1, and less than the least of all the saints in Ephesians 3.8, and prisoner of the Lord in Ephesians 4.1. After an initial period of hostility toward him, both by skeptical Christians and by his former allies the Jews, the latter of whom sought to kill him, and from whom he escaped by being lowered out of harm's way in a basket, as reported in Acts 9.25. He went on with Barnabas by way of Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and his home city of Tarsus to found a Christian community at Antioch, where over the course of the next year the followers of Jesus grew and multiplied. And St. Luke tells us that it was at Antioch that they first call themselves Christians. That's from Acts 11, verse 26. Later, he traveled to the island of Cyprus, where he first took the name Paul, from Acts 13, verse 9, and began a journey in evangelism that would occupy the rest of his life. The illustration is St. Paul on the road to Damascus, a mid-15th century miniature illumination on parchment by Jean Fouquet for the cover of the Chantilly Book of Hours or Book of Hours of Etienne Chevalier from the collection now at the Musée Condé at Chateau Chantilly, Chantilly, France, created between 1452 and 1461 A.D. for Etienne Chevalier, who was treasurer to King Edward VII of France. The story of St. Paul's missionary trips by land and by sea is told in detail in later chapters of Acts of the Apostles, including the story of his recruitment of Silas and Timothy, and will not be retold here. St. Paul was responsible for planting new churches throughout Asia Minor, including at Colossae, to whom he later wrote, and later in Europe at Athens and Corinth, Thessalonica and Philippi, and other locations. In all, he would make three such voyages throughout the period exhibiting a certain tenacity and persistence or old-fashioned honest hard work in the face of adversity. According to ancient tradition, he supported himself during his, this period with a secular occupation as a tent maker. Eventually, he was arrested, but as a Roman citizen, he had the right of trial, which he used skillfully to delay the process of judgment. But eventually, after many years of confinement in different forms and different places, he was put to death during the reign of Nero, likely around 68 AD. There is no record in the Roman files of the trial. The place of his death is marked at the Church of St. Paul at the Three Fountains on the Ostia Road outside Rome.
But it is not for this early missionary work, with the help of others, that St. Paul is primarily remembered, but for the letters he wrote to the churches he founded and to those who assisted him in his missionary work. For this task, St. Paul adapted the Greek form of letters from the Greek epistole in a way never before seen. St. Paul's epistles were both a means of staying in touch with the churches he founded and also instruction to them of Christian doctrine. These letters are included in the Bible based upon their length and not in any order of importance or chronological sequence. The letter to the congregation at Rome was the longest and is placed first and for no other reason. The other letters are grouped in descending size with any second letter, such as to the Corinthians and Thessalonians, following immediately after the first letter, regardless of the time of their sending. The letters to his pupils Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are placed at the end, followed by Hebrews. In modern times, in literary study and learning, anyone starting to read a new author would begin with the first work and not necessarily the longest. For modern Christians seeking to understand St. Paul's teachings, it might be better to read them in the order of their composition, as this would allow the reader to observe the development of the teaching message and the style. Scholars disagree about the order, but the most common understanding of the sequence is Thessalonians, Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Titus, Timothy, and Hebrews. Some dispute Pauline authorship of Hebrews, although most traditional Christians still call Hebrews the work of St. Paul. Other saints, including Peter, James, John, and Jude, as well as later apostles such as Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, copied the style. His opening greeting soon became the standard form of Christian greeting, especially among the clergy. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is found in Romans 1, verse 7b, and in other variations in other epistles. St. Paul's legacy has been so far-reaching that he has become the primary target of reformers, whose real objective is not scholarship, but to replace St. Paul's doctrines with their own. Here are just a few of his many contributions to our understanding of and practice of the Christian faith both in liturgy and life. The Anglican form of Holy Eucharist. The consecration prayer, beginning with All glory be to thee, Almighty God, and going through on the night in which he was betrayed, and so on, has been known since the late 1st and early 2nd centuries as the Pauline Rite, since it is based upon variations of his epistles. Rules for the selection of bishops and deacons and by extension the clergy by to priests 
found in 1 Timothy 3, 1-13, which except until very recent times has been the gold standard for the selection of all three offices. Enumeration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. The concept of the Christian virtues of which he listed them and said that the foremost of them are faith, hope, and love, or charity in the King James Version, which you'll find in 1 Corinthians 13. The concept of conscience as an inner law written by God and by which Christians are guided from birth with the ability to recognize good and evil, which he explained in Romans 2. The church as the bride of Christ explained in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. The church built on the apostles and prophets with Jesus as its cornerstone in Ephesians 2, verse 20. The importance of and sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman, which is built into the prayer book rite of holy matrimony, largely based on Ephesians 5. The sacrament of baptism understood in the context of the passage of the Israelites through the Red Sea and also of death to sin and rebirth in Jesus Christ, which he discussed extensively in Romans 5, 6, and 7. Christians as children of God by adoption in Romans 8, 14 to 17 and Ephesians 1 to 5. Salvation by grace, the phrase that excited Martin Luther, by grace you have been saved in Ephesians 2, verse 5. The church universal as a body of the faithful, or fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God in Ephesians 2.19. A deep reverence and honor toward Jesus Christ. The Christian practice of making the sign of the cross at the mention of his name is based upon St. Paul's adaptation of Isaiah 45, verse 23. Unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And it found its way into St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It is known that making the sign of the cross was first recorded by the Roman historian Tertullian in the last half of the second century. After the coming of Constantine as a Christian emperor, it became widespread throughout the Roman Empire. Finally, his use of terms which have come to be associated with the teaching of Christian spirituality, including but not limited to the use of mystery and mysteries of God, the idea of taking the Holy Spirit into the heart, the difference between knowledge, which is an academic discipline, and understanding, which is a spiritual discipline, 
and his reference to the reality of spiritual warfare both in heaven and on earth. For more on his contributions to the Anglican understanding of Christian spirituality and also that of Saints Peter, James, and Jude, see pages 86 to 98 in the AIC publication Christian Spirituality and Anglican Perspective available through our virtual bookstore https colon slash slash www.amazon.com slash author slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. The story of the relics of St. Paul is simple. There has never been any significant controversy over the Roman Catholic claim that his remains are buried under the altar at the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls at Rome. The first church built on that site dates to the 4th century. The present building, constructed on the site on the site of a building that was destroyed by a major fire, was consecrated in 1823. The illustrations are an exterior view of the basilica and an interior view of its apse, showing Christ Pantocrator seated with the saints at his side and below him, with St. Paul on his immediate right, then farther on St. Luke, and on his immediate left, or right in the picture, St. Peter, followed by St. Andrew. The collect for the conversion of St. Paul was written by Archbishop Cranmer and was adapted from a late Gregorian sacramentary. O God, who through the preaching of the blessed Apostle St. Paul has caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world, Grant, we beseech thee, that we, having his wonderful conversion in remembrance, may show forth our thankfulness unto thee for the same, by following the holy doctrine which he taught, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Anglican tradition in America, St. Paul was commemorated in the special verses for the hymn From All the Saints in Warfare, written in 1864 by Horatio Nelson and published with the 1892 hymnal and sung to the tune, Aurelia. Praise for the light from heaven. Praise for the voice of awe. Praise for the mystic vision the persecutor saw. Thee, Lord, for his conversion we glorify today. So lighten all our darkness with thy true spirit's ray. The music was performed by Richard Irwin, whose website is www.hymnswithoutwords.com. If you'd like a PDF of all five pages of the hymn, please send an email request to me at frron.stjohnanglican at earthlink.net. 
Thank you so much for joining me for Episode 5 in the Lives of the Saints first series, the 1928 BCP Saints. This series, as well as other teaching videos and seasonal videos, is available directly on our YouTube channel, for which the direct link is https colon slash slash www.youtube.com slash c slash St. John C. Or a better way, by using the episode links at http colon right slash right slash www.anglicaninternetchurch.net slash digital hyphen library dot html. I also invite you to visit our virtual bookstore referenced earlier at https colon slash slash www.amazon.com slash author slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. Royalties from the sale of all AIC publications are contributed to the AIC. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.